Thank you, uh, Christina, Professor Lavin. Um, and uh, thanks to uh, Professor Tristan Grunow for inviting me and uh, to uh, uh, Christina and Stefania Burke, who have been driving me around today to see a little bit of the town in the rain. Um, it's wonderful to, to, to be here. And thank you all for coming. Um, it, it's, it's wonderful to be here. I, I have not been back to Vancouver in quite a long time since um, Professor Josh Mostow and Sherilyn Orbaugh had me out many, many years ago. It was so long ago that Sherilyn and I went rollerblading, which is something that <laughs> people just don't do anymore, I don't think. Um, so that, that sort of uh, marks us age-wise or era-wise. Uh, it was way back in the era of rollerblading um, that I was last year. But it's, it's delightful. It's a beautiful uh, place. Um, so I'm especially uh, uh, thankful for uh, the organizers for bringing me here because um, I, I don't work on the Meiji period, actually. Um, I've never really published a word on Japan after about 1840, uh, which is something I was hesitant to mention because I thought maybe that I'd be disinvited um, from Meiji at 150. Um, but, uh, uh, so, so, but, but, but nevertheless, this is part, uh, what I'm going to talk about today is part of a new project, um, which is a history of adoption in Japan. Um, from about 1600 to, oh, about the present, <laughs> I think. Um, so it's a big project, and I've been working on various different aspects of it, and I've been slowly, t uh, tentatively moving uh, from the early modern into the modern uh, period, uh, about which I still really don't know a whole lot. Um, so, 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 that, so that's what, uh, that's what you're going to hear about today. Um, I'm interested in the history of the family. And that's to say that I'm interested in, in a topic that's ill-defined and constantly changing. Uh, we're all convinced we know what a family is until we actually start thinking uh, about it. And then we realize just how constructed and culturally specific a concept uh, it is. So thinking about this, I'm on the one hand interested in the history of the family as a subdiscipline of history, uh, which concerns how the institution called the family emerged, developed, and changed, especially in Japan, um, but also globally and across time. And I'm most particularly interested in the early modern uh, period. So for Japan historians, obviously, that's 17th, 19th centuries. Uh, European historians push it back to the 15th century. Uh, and of course, the Chinese historians think that modern starts in the 12th century. Um, but I'm also interested in the history of families as collections of related persons, uh, most often related by blood, but not always, and who often live together, but not always. So given that the subject of family is quite complicated, I should have, in retrospect, altered the title of this talk, uh, because in many ways the title betrays some normative assumptions about how families ought to work. That is, families should not be fractured. They should be organically integrated and whole. And heirs should not be adopted. They should be born into a family, destined as they are to continue its bloodline. So it's kind of the counterintuitive nature of the title that's supposed to make it interesting, just somewhat maybe a little bit interesting. I mean, no one wants to hear a talk about happy, intact families birthing their own children generation after generation. And there's no news in that. That's dog bites man. That's boring. Or so we think. We want to hear about the other way around. And that's precisely the issue I want to talk about today. As far as family history goes, evidence suggests that Japanese families are, and have been, at least since the Tokugawa period, the other way around, which is to say, different from us and different from our normative concepts of what a family is. But is that really the case? Are Japanese families so different? And if they are, how are they different? Are they different structurally? Are they different affectively in terms of the emotional ties that bind them? And did they change substantially in the shift from early modern to modern, from Tokugawa to Meiji? 
So there are lots of question marks there, and so I should have put one in the title, kind of like that. Um, and there are questions, I, and these are questions I want to keep on the back burner as I move through the talk, and I'll revisit them uh, as we go along. So the family in early modern Japan, if not, and, and, as in many, if not most societies, was a key social and political institution, perhaps the key social and political institution. And yet early modern families are not organic entities. They were almost constantly under construction, their personnel shifting about with a frequency that might be surprising to present day observers. For example, divorce was very common. Up to 10% of marriages within the samurai class and about a third of commoner unions ended in dissolution. And remarriage for both men and women was widely accepted. There was no prohibition, for example, against widow or divorcee remarriage. Furthermore, adoption of males, females, adults, children, heirs, non-heirs happened so often as to be unremarkable. You would be hard pressed to find a genealogy or family record in early modern Japan that didn't contain adoptees. And although family headship ideally went to an eldest son by birth, it could also unproblematically go to a younger son or to an adoptee who might be a kinsman, but just as often was not. A common pattern was to adopt a daughter's husband as heir, making him simultaneously son and son-in-law. And sometimes the daughter, for whom the husband was adopted, was herself also adopted. Or childless couples or widows or widowers might just cut to the chase and adopt a married couple to continue their family line. In other words, the, adoption, the options for family formation and continuation were many and were by no means limited to biological reproduction. Now, it's one thing to just make a statement about the highly constructed nature of Japanese families. It's another to, to actually see how complicated early modern families could be. So to illustrate, let me give you one very confusing example, um, that of the family of Kuroda Naokuni, uh, a middle-ranking but very politically well-connected daimyo of Tatebayashi domain at the turn of the 18th century. This um, example comes from my book, so if you have read the book, it's, it's familiar to you. Um, so I apologize for that. Uh, but it's a good example. Now, Naokuni, uh, the daimyo, was not born a Kuroda, he was born a Nakayama, uh, but he was adopted at a young age by his maternal relatives who were uh, the Kuroda. His wife, Tosako, was also adopted. She was born into the Ori family, but she was adopted um, by Yanagisawa Yoshiyasu, uh, the powerful advisor to the fifth shogun Tsunayoshi, Tokugawa Tsunayoshi. Over two generations, Naokuni and his heirs and their principal wives managed to produce nine daughters and no sons. And since an heir had to be male, they clearly had a problem. And so how did they solve it? Naokuni and his principal wife, Tosako, had four daughters. Now, Naokuni did have a son by a concubine, but instead of, of appointing that son, called Naoyuki, as his heir, Naokuni adopted his second daughter Michiko's husband as heir and successor, and that adoptee took the name Kuroda Naomoto. This adoptee was also Naokuni's nephew, so Michiko and Naomoto's marriage was a first cousin marriage, but since there was no stigma or taboo on close kin marriages in Japan, all was good. But only for a short while, because the adopted son-in-law slash husband slash nephew uh, died at the age of 21 after only a few years of marriage and the birth of one child, uh, a daughter, Kayoko. Undaunted, the Kuroda let only a short time pass before they adopted a second husband for Michiko. Uh, and I really mean a short time, like a year, not even a year. Um, so there's no, no, no widow chastity or, or divorcee stigma here. Now, the second husband was not a kinsman. He was born into the Honda family. 
Um, but upon adoption took the name uh, Naozumi, Kuroda Naozumi, and he and Michiko had five more daughters but no sons, um, compelling the couple to adopt as heir Naokuni's son by concubine, the aforementioned Naoyuki. That guy. Where would he go? Uh, that guy. So uh, Michiko adopted her half-brother as her son-slash-second husband. Naoyuki had two biological sons, I couldn't fit them on the chart, um, but nonetheless he bypassed both of them to adopt as his heir the son of his adoptive father Naozumi and a concubine, a son who took the name uh, Naohiro. Where'd he go? There he goes, Naohiro. Um, so there was no blood relation between Naoyuki and his adoptive father Naozumi, nor between Naoyuki and his adopted son and heir Naohiro. And in fact, in 11 generations of Kuroda househeads over uh, <laughs> More than a hundred years, I count only one incident of airship passing directly from father to biological son. So while the Kuroda name survived intact and the title of daimyo was passed to successive male heirs over many generations, the blood ties between those heirs were more often than not weak or non-existent. Due to the consistent intercession of adopted sons and sons-in-law, by the end of the 18th century, the Kuroda heirs were bound less by bloodline than they were by carefully constructed affiliations of adoption and marriage. But we can look at this crazy chart and we can ask, how unusual were the Kuroda's family's succession strategies? Now, broadly, comparatively speaking, I'm going to take that away. Broadly, comparatively speaking, these tactics would never have worked in Qing China or Joseon Korea. Families in China and Korea adopted heirs quite frequently, but there was significant pressure, both customary and codified, to choose a single male adoptee from among patrilateral kinsmen, you know, father side kin. By contrast, Japanese families had greater latitude to determine kinship in many ways that served particular family and lineage needs, and its members were relatively more free to choose heirs from a wider range of possible successors, matrilateral kin, patrilateral kin, distantly related and unrelated individuals were all possible adoptees. Even cross-generational adoption, that is adopting one's younger brother as one's son, for example, which directly violated Confucian ritual principles of succession was allowed and frequently practiced in Tokugawa, Japan. And we saw that um, when Kuroda Michiko and her second husband adopted her half-brother. As for adopting sons-in-law, families in late imperial China rarely did, and never for heirship. In Joseon, Korea, sons-in-law were never adopted for any reason. And in fact, Koreans only began adopting sons-in-law for heirship grudgingly in the 20th century because the Japanese, during the colonial period, forced them to do so. For Chinese and Korean families, it seems, nominal patrilineality, as we see in the Kuroda family, was not enough. To adopt a son-in-law was to achieve lineage continuity through daughters rather than sons, and it was fundamentally unacceptable. But early modern Japanese families were much less bound by these principles of patrilineality and blood ties, and as a result, adopted sons-in-law, many of whom were distant kin or non-kin, played a crucial role in shoring up an otherwise fragile system. The contrast between adoption practices in early modern Japan and in Western Europe is even more stark. The standard narrative of adoption in pre-19th century Europe might be summarized as follows. Adoption was common under the Roman Empire, declined during the medieval period, largely due to the influence of the Catholic Church, and then ceased to exist between about the 16th and early 20th centuries. The reluctance of late medieval and early modern families to adopt has led the demographic historian Antoinette Fauchamou to argue that the history of, of adoption in pre-modern Europe should more properly be called, quote, a history of non-adoption. 
So Japanese succession practices differed substantially from those in East Asia and those in Europe. But still, we want to know how different the Kuroda were from other families in early modern Japan. Was their pattern of frequent and flexible adoption unusual even as compared to other Japanese families like them? Now here I'm going to give you some numbers, but I'm giving them to you with a warning. Um, to paraphrase both Mark Twain and Ken Pomerantz, there are four categories of thing, lies, damn lies, statistics, and early modern statistics. Um, nonetheless, I will persist. Uh, I'm not going to put these numbers up on the slide. Um, so let's start with the highest level of the elite. Uh, four out of the 14 men who succeeded to the office of shogun in the Tokugawa period were adopted by their predecessors. That's 28% of shogunal successions uh, are go-to go adoptees. By contrast, there's not a single adoptee in the Ming or Qing lineages and only one in the Yi dynasty uh, lineage. If you look to a broader sampling of the ruling elite in Tokugawa, Japan, the numbers are similar. Tsubochi Reiko's data on succession to airship in thousands of early modern warrior houses in all regions of Japan shows that in the 17th and 18th centuries, about 22% of heirs were adopted. As for commoners, research by Japanese historical demographers like Hayami Akira, Kurosu Satomi, and Ochiya Emiko reveal that rates of adoption of heirs among commoners in central and northeastern Japan in the later Tokugawa period were about the same as those of samurai. About 21% of commoner heirs in sampled areas were adopted. So the Kuroda were still, were, were perhaps outliers in terms of being such vigorous adopters, but their cohort didn't lie far, far behind. And, and they were not outliers with regard to the types of adoption they favored, the adoption of son-in-laws, sons-in-law as heirs. Such in-marrying adopted sons-in-law, referred to as mukoyoshi, constituted an average of 40% of all adoptions for succession in warrior houses surveyed by Tsubouchi in the 17th and 18th centuries. On average, 10% of all succession cases in warrior houses in the 17th and 18th centuries involved adopted sons-in-law. So in other words, about 1 in 10 heads of warrior houses in the Tokugawa period were not only adopted, they were adopted sons-in-law. For commoners, the numbers are even higher, as many as 66% of commoners who adopted heirs in the areas surveyed by Hayami, Kurosa, and Ochiai adopted sons-in-law. So why did families rely so heavily on adopting sons-in-law? In many ways, adopting a daughter's husband as an heir could be an optimal succession strategy. In terms of kinship ties, the adoptee's offspring would still be direct descendants of the househead, albeit through the matriline rather than the patriline. I argue in my book that the prevalence of son-in-law adoption increased the importance of women as daughters, wives, and mothers, but also as lineage managers, because women were integrally involved in managing the, the ingress and outflow of household personnel. One significant consequence of this is that there was little to no female infanticide in Japan. Infanticide, of course, there was, but not systematic widespread female infanticide, perhaps because daughters were also valuable to families seeking to perpetuate themselves. For commoners and for warrior houses of lower status, the economic benefits of son-in-law adoption were also compelling. Adopting a daughter's husband counteracted the threat of resource dispersion because the possibility that family assets would be scattered more broadly and potentially subject to the control of outsiders was held in check by matrilineal continuity through daughters. And anthropologists have long pointed out that endogamous marriage, marrying within, uh, which we see in spades in the Kuroda family, has been a tactic used in many family systems to concentrate resources. 
even more critically, due to the practice of providing dowries for adopted sons-in-law when they married into their wives' families, adoption could be economically beneficial to a receiving family, especially because adopted sons-in-law often came from families of higher rank or status than those into which they married or adopt and adopted. Because of this, the receiving family could then benefit from the status and the wealth of the heir's natal family. Furthermore, adoption of sons-in-law, who were often adolescents or adults at the time of adoption, proved beneficial because, to put it bluntly, adoption of an heir could be more expedient than birthing and raising one. Parents out there, say amen. We all know that raising children is a risky business. You can try your best and things may or may not work out. Um, adoption of an heir was more efficient with regard to succession because the adoptee was brought into the family in late childhood or early adulthood when his physical survival was more likely, his potential as a househead could be more accurately gauged, and the not inconsiderable costs of his early upbringing and education had already been covered by his natal family. The sending family, for its part, benefited as well. While they had to render the dowry, which was a financial burden for them, uh, by adopting out a non-inheriting son, the family was able, again putting it bluntly, to shed a dependent who would otherwise contribute relatively little to the family's fortunes, and indeed could possibly become a drain on them. Many families, especially elite ones, sought to strike this tricky balance between keeping an heir and maybe a spare at home and adopting out the remaining sons. However, the strategy sometimes backfired for a family that had adopted out all of its surplus sons uh, sometimes found itself without an heir if the remaining male offspring died young or became incapacitated, uh, making adoption of an heir necessary. So you do see cases where a family has four or five biological sons and they still end up adopting an heir because they adopt all of them out, um, except, and they don't keep enough in reserve, so to speak. Um, the early modern Japanese family system made lineage maintenance a constant preoccupation a gamble with fate and survival. For early modern warriors, barred from engaging in any work other than being a samurai, name and status was all they had. If the lineage ended, so did their place in society. And for commoners, everything was based on the family. If you had no family affiliation, you could not really function as a full member of society. The family was also a spiritual necessity. If the family line ended, no one could worship ancestors, which was a grave disservice to the past. Now, all of these factors allowed for or created the, the, the circumstances in which a high tolerance for manipulation of family relations, adoption chief among them, uh, was not only tolerated but encouraged. Uh, and this resulted in these highly engineered families of the sort like the Kurodas. Now, non-Japanese observers have long found the constructed nature of Japanese families interesting, odd, off-putting, uh, at least worthy of comment. Uh, I've recently been reading, and I was telling uh, Tristan about this, the diary of Clara Whitney, who lived in Japan in the 1870s uh, as, a, as a teenager and kept a very detailed diary um, of her life. And she uh, comments on the, the uh, she had a lot of sort of high-powered acquaintances, among them uh, the descendants of the Tokugawa family, a bunch of Matsudaira's, and one of the Matsudaira's um, is, was uh, uh, engaged to marry a good friend of hers, uh, and he died um, before the marriage could happen. And she's describing his family, the Matsudaira family, and his name this is Matsudaira Yasutomo. Uh, she says, quote, Yasutomo's relationship with the rest of the family is very peculiar, for by certain intermarriages and adoptions, he has become the son of his grandfather, uncle to himself, and nephew to his sister. 
All this is very peculiar, but often we find among noble families stranger relations than these. We all thought him the only son, but there has immediately arisen up another to fill his place. Uh, and, and so she has the same kind of reaction uh, that we often have when we see these families. Uh, but I want to emphasize that adoption and succession practices, as, as unusual as they seem to us and to people like Clara Whitney, don't mean that the, the, the Japanese family is unique, and I certainly don't want to revive old arguments that the Japanese family or Ia is the foundation of a distinctively Japanese civilization. Uh, the engineered family was quite simply a structural necessity. Now, the family and its maintenance are at the root of all these enormously consequential developments, and I could talk at great length about these alone. But I'm a cultural historian, and I'm interested in the intangibles as well. I also want to know, how did people inhabit and also shape family roles as they lived them in the day-to-day? In my book, The Problem of Women in Early Modern Japan, I try to show how women in warrior families often took on the roles of lineage managers, doing what anthropologists call the kin work of maintaining and even extending family and familial ties to others. But as I was researching and writing that book, I kept wondering, what about all these adopted sons-in-law? There was a saying in the Tokugawa period that an only daughter can choose among many husbands. But what about that husband? How did he feel about the role into which he was cast? After all, even though adopting a son-in-law could work out very well for the adopting family, the situation could be quite difficult for the son-in-law himself, largely because an adopted son-in-law occupied the same unenviable position as a wife who married into her husband's house, which is to say he was symbolically and practically cut off from his natal family, a loner in unfamiliar and sometimes hostile territory, compelled by convention to learn the ways of the house under the tutelage of demanding and often unsympathetic in-laws, Normative gender roles and the heavy burden of house headship complicated the situation for an adopted son-in-law because he possessed authority accorded by his gender and role, but that power was circumscribed by both his wife and his in-laws, who were also his adoptive parents, into whose own home he arrived as an outsider. He was the heir, the putative household head, or soon-to-be household head, but he was also a newcomer to the house he was supposed to lead. And all this must have led to a kind of cognitive dissonance for many adopted sons-in-law. Perhaps that's the reason the divorce of adopted sons-in-law was fairly frequent among samurai families. And warrior lineages, lineages show evidence of multiple divorces, evincing a kind of trial and error attitude towards this manner of heir acquisition. This one doesn't work out. You get rid of him, and you get another one. Among rural commoner families, divorce of adopted sons-in-law apparently was more difficult due to the need to secure communal approval for dissolution of marriage. And yet marriage dissolutions were not uncommon among commoners either. So there are a lot of questions I want to ask about adopted sons-in-law, but I haven't yet found any sources from the Tokugawa period that reveal much from a personal, individual standpoint about what the experience of being a mukoyoshi was like. In other words, I was looking for and not finding evidence for that most elusive of historical artifacts, affect, emotion, feelings. So I was quite surprised when recently I was idly sifting through early Meiji newspaper databases and adopted son-in-law affect fairly jumped off the page. There it was, evidence of resentment, jealousy, rage, revenge, violence, misery in multiple forms and at almost absurdly tragic levels among adopted sons-in-law, all of it documented in print with what seemed to me to be astounding frequency. To give you some examples, and actually, I'm going to give a number of examples just because I can. Um, 
an early modern historian with a keyword searchable newspaper database is like a blue jay with a twig, you know, tools, worm, worm, worm. Um, so from an article in the Yomiyori Shimbun in the ninth month of the 18th day of 1875, quote, the barber Ginjiro of Itakura Rokuchome in Tokyo is the adopted son-in-law of Ushida Chusuke of Nishikubo Motocho. He was married to Chusuke's daughter Onobu. Together they had a daughter. But around the seventh month, seventh month of this year, the child fell ill and died. And after this, Ginjiro began drinking and abusing his wife. The father Chusuke took his daughter Onobu away and began negotiations for divorce. Ginjiro learned on the 15th day of this month that his wife and father-in-law planned to divorce him and take back their household, that is to rescind his rights of heirship. That night he went to sleep as usual and at the dawn of the 16th he took a straight razor and with abandon slashed Onobu on the cheek, leaving a wound of one sun and five bu in length, about an inch and a half. He also slashed her above the left ear, leaving a wound of five bu, half an inch. He cut her near her hand as well. Kinjiro also cut himself in several places. Then he jumped into the well in back of the house. The neighbors were shocked and came and pulled him out, and there was much commotion." End quote. It's the end of the article. Or this from the same newspaper on the 28th day of the third month of 1876. Quote, an adopted son-in-law in Yokohama Sueyashicho named Toyama Mankichi was married to Otsuru, daughter of Okane. So this is a woman. She's probably a widow. But Mankichi wasted his spare time and was a spendthrift, so Okane made to divorce him and adopt a new husband, a greengrocer named Tosuke, for Otsuru to replace Mankichi as heir. Upon hearing this, on the 24th of this month, Mankichi went out into Yokohama no Gecho and got a large kitchen knife and went to the replacement heir Tosuke's house. Tosuke was not there, but Otsuru and Okane were, and he demanded to be served a drink, saying he'd pay for it. Otsuru thought she would serve him, then he'd drink and go home, but he took out the hidden knife and cut Otsuru. Okane made to push him away and he cut her also. Both of them sustained deep wounds in several places and collapsed. Mankichi was apprehended shortly thereafter. We must stop this kind of uncivilized behavior. Um, the newspapers often include these editorial comments at the end of the news reports. Then on the 21st day of the 10th month of 1877, quote, there are many cases of people taking in bad adoptees. Everyone knows this. Uh, one such case is in Uacho. I, they didn't say everyone knows this. I'm editorializing. There are many cases of people taking in bad adoptees. One such case is in Uacho where Nagai Oseki, again a woman, maybe a widow, took in a man named Tatabashi Seikichi as adopted husband for her adopted daughter, Okura. So Okura's adopted, Seikichi is adopted. Things were not harmonious in the household and they divorced, but afterwards Seikichi maintained feelings for Okura and would come to the house to call frequently. Yesterday at around four in the morning, Seikichi snuck in through a back window and stabbed the sleeping Okura with intent of killing her. He also intended to attack, uh, attack her adopted mother, uh, Oseki, and wounded her in several places. Then he stabbed himself in the throat. Neighbors came to the scene and saw that Okura was dead and Oseki badly wounded. They called for help, but Oseki died. Seikichi was taken away, his condition unknown. And so it goes. On the first day of the ninth month of 1877, there appears a, quote, regrettable story about a mukoyoshi in Yokohama named Hattori Asajiro, who, quote, turned bad and from morning till night just laid about and threw away the family money like old bathwater, end quote. He told his adoptive mother he wished she would just die so he could inherit the house, and eventually he attacked her, pushing her off the veranda and into the garden where she hit her head on a rock and died. He then disappeared. In the second month of 1878, we see an article about a fishmonger in Tokyo's Honshiba neighborhood who took in a mukoyoshi who had no known family. He was Museki. 
he was not in anybody's family register, so warning. Um, this adoptee, when his wife was pregnant with their second child, took out a loan of 70,000 yen and escaped to places unknown. The adoptive family looked everywhere for him, but quote, since he had no family ties, nothing could be done. On the fifth day of the ninth month of 1879, we see another Yomiuri report about a Mukoyoshi who was lazy, didn't work, turned to drinking, and when the money ran out, put his wife into contract labor to clear his debts. The moral of this story, according to the newspaper, is, quote, you can't take in a Mukoyoshi carelessly. Another article from the sixth month of 1880 tells of a Mukoyoshi who, days after the wedding, absconded with all the gifts and was never seen again. Another from the sixth month of 1881 describes a Mukoyoshi who was divorced by his adoptive family because he was a lazy drunkard, do we see a pattern here, and left the family but took his young son with him only to abandon the son uh, with his own relatives shortly thereafter, whereupon he returned to violently attack his ex-wife. Then in the fourth month of 1882, there was a terrible report of a Mukoyoshi who was divorced for gambling and then took his former wife and child <coughs> hostage and strangled them. He planned to burn the bodies, but he was apprehended first. Now, not every case that appeared in the press of discord in cases of adopted sons-in-law was solely the fault of the adoptee. Sometimes the adoptive family's cruel treatment of the Mukoyoshi is cited as the reason for the later conflict. Take the case profiled in a Yomiuri article from the 18th day of the fourth month of 1876. It begins by posing a rhetorical question, quote, how shallow can women be? Aren't there many such women in the world today? And it goes on to tell the case of Takada Minosuke, son of Takada Ichibei in the town of Choshi in Shimosa. Minosuke, the article says, quote, was no Mitsuuji or Narihira. That is to say, he was no good-looking ladies' man, but he was, quote, a nice guy. Right? He had a nice personality. Uh, Minosuke fell in love with Oman, the only daughter of Heijiro of Koyama Village in Matsudo, and, quote, because her father worried that he might die without an heir, Heijiro took him in as a mukoyoshi. Last year, in the fourth month, he went to their house as a husband. But around the tenth month, Minosuke fell ill. His face turned dark red and he became deaf. He looked like a demon, like an oni. And there's an implication here that he uh, suffers from a sexually transmitted disease, or the family thinks he does, but it's not clear. Anyway, Oman, the story goes on, Oman quickly became disgusted by him and wanted to send him back to his hometown for treatment. Selfishly, she said that looking at him made her sick to her stomach. Her parents took her side and agreed with the plan to send him back to his needle house, and they divorced him. They, that is Oman and her parents, were quite happy. Yet Oman refused to visit Minosuke and remained disgusted by him. Soon after, Oman was sent in marriage to Asada Sanjiro of Shinjuku. Now what happened to the air worries? I don't know, but she's married off. Minosuke heard this and he felt dejected. Crying, he said, quote, Oman and her parents have not said a word to me and selfishly have not even visited me once. Perhaps the most bizarre of all the stories I've read so far also implicates an adoptive family in Amukoyoshi's bad behavior. This is from the Yomiuri in the sixth month of 1878. It begins, quote, from long ago, flatulence uprisings, hohi no sodo, have occasionally broken out in various places. Such events have even appeared in newspaper reports. Here, we report on one terrifying case of farting in Aoyana Gimura in Azusa no Kuni. There, an adopted son-in-law named Shirai Shozaemon lived with his adoptive mother and father, his wife, and two children. After a while, Shozaemon took to drinking and sold off the family assets and land to fund his habits. 
Last month on the 30th, he'd been out drinking and returned home and was sitting next to the Irori having a smoke. Just then, his wife, while lighting a fire under the kamado, without thinking, let out a loud fart. And the, the report includes the onomatopoeia. <laughs> it caught the breeze and Chozaiman could smell it even though he held his nose. He became upset, drew his short sword and made to attack his wife. She grabbed the children and fled, but his adoptive mother, a father, Sebe, tried to intervene and Chozaiman cut him. Shozaimon was apprehended and the father was treated for his wounds. And the newspaper opines, quote, Shozaimon's lawlessness goes without saying, but the daughter's behavior was also bad. <laughs> now, not every adopted son-in-law story that made the newspapers was so dire. Some stories in the Yomiuri actually extol the virtues of loyal and filial mukoyoshi. But those are in the minority. Most of the stories that appear in the Yomiuri Shimbun over the course of the Meiji period that concern adopted sons-in-law have to do with crimes or malfeasances committed by them against their adoptive families. And this is kind of early stage research for the Yomiuri's only paper I've looked at so far. Now the sorts of stories I've referred to generally appeared in the crime or the society section of the newspaper, although I did find one story about a bad mukoyoshi in the advice column. Uh, but fictionalized stories about the travails of adopted sons-in-law also appeared in the major daily papers. This was the case with Futabata Shime's novel, Sono Omokage, published in serial form in the Tokyo Asai Shimbun beginning in 1906. This was Futabate's second novel. I'm sorry, this is really uh, impoverished visuals in this talk. <laughs> this was Futabate's second novel. His first was, of course, Ukiguma, um, often hailed as Japan's first modern novel. He wrote Sono Omokage after a 20-year-long self-imposed hiatus from the literary scene during which he worked as a government, uh, in the government information office, taught at the Tokyo School of Foreign Languages, worked at a police academy in Beijing, um, and also as a reporter for the Asai Shimbun. Now, I wouldn't ever claim any expertise in Meiji literary criticism, but from what I can tell, Sono Omokage is not seen as one of Futabate's great artistic achievements. Um, it seems somewhat derivative, reworking themes explored to greater effect earlier in Ukigumo, and borrowing key plot points from other novels, especially Uchida Roan's uh, Kure no Niju Hachinichi, which also fe features a main character who's a mukoyoshi, and was published in 1898. Its literary merit notwithstanding, though, for my purposes, which is to say the purposes of a historian interested in understanding changes in family structure and family roles in the Meiji period, Sono Omokage is perfect. The novel was translated in English, uh, uh, into English in 1919 under the title An Adopted Husband. And the difference in titles says a lot. Uh, the original Japanese title refers not to the protagonist, who's an adopted husband, but to the shadowy remembered image of the woman he loved and lost. And this suggests that the focus for non-Japanese readers is on the family and its ostensible peculiarities, the adopted husband, whereas for Japanese readers, the focus is on the star-crossed uh, lovers. I know this is very sophisticated literary criticism, but um, Sono Omokage tells the story of Ono Tetsuya, a professor of economics at, quote, a certain private university in Kanda in Tokyo. In the novel's opening pages, he's described as demoralized and downtrodden. Quote, and this is from the English translation. The shabbiness of this slender man showed clearly in the smeary pepper and salt sack coat and trousers threadbare at the knees. He appeared seedy and poverty stricken and at first glance might have been taken for a scholar out of employment. Under his arm, he carried a bulging, soiled and greasy leather portfolio, end quote. And we found out a few pages later that Tetsuya was, quote, 
now a rather antiquated Bachelor of Laws of 34 or 35, as he had been graduated from the Imperial University seven or eight years before at the age of 27. According to the gossip of his pupils, though his lectures were dry and invited yawns, his reasoning was clear-cut and left no point in doubt. Yet the students did not like him because he graded them so severely." End quote. A familiar and timeless, if unhappy, portrait. And it gets worse because, as we're soon told, Ono Tetsuya has a miserable home life. He was adopted into the Ono family as a mukoyoshi, and his adoptive father, Reizo, died soon after the marriage, so Tetsuya now lives with his widowed mother, Takiko, and his wife, Tokiko, who is described uh, in the novel as, quote, Takiko's daughter and the heiress of the family. And note that technically Tetsuya is the heir, but his wife is here described as the heiress because she's the one with the, 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 the house, the family, the, the inheritance. Importantly, also in the Ono household is Sayoko, the widowed illegitimate daughter of Reizo and half-sister of Tokiko, whose mother was one of the family maids. And Sayoko turns out to be the character around whom the plot revolves. As the only man in the house, Tetsuya is supposed to rule over this household of women, but he cannot. As the omniscient narration explains, quote, he was certainly master of the house, and yet, humiliating as it was to him, he could not have his own way. Unknowingly, he had permitted his domestic authority to weaken, and now his wife and her mother did just as they pleased. This deplorable state of things, confirmed by time, could not be changed, end quote. Now, unlike the adopted sons-in-law in the newspaper reports, Tetsuya is not lazy and he's not a drunk, at least not in the beginning of the novel. The end is a different story. Um, he works several teaching jobs simultaneously, exhausting himself in a futile effort to maintain the family finances at a, at a respectable level, a job made impossible by his, by his wife Tokiko's lavish spending on things like clothes and theater outings. She goes out with her mother and her friends, but without Tetsuya, of course. His efforts are met not with appreciation by his wife and mother-in-law, but with scorn and disdain. And try as he might, Tetsuya can't keep Tokiko and her mother in the style to which they had become accustomed when their father and husband, described as a high-class civil officer, was alive. Nor can Tetsuya measure up to family friends like the insufferable Hamura, a businessman with international connections, or the highly successful self-made man Shibuya, both of whom have flourished in the new Meiji world of opportunity. The only one who appreciates and commiserates with Tetsuya is Sayoko, who has experienced her own hardships in life. In addition to being the offspring of an extramarital affair, she lost her husband in the Russo-Japanese War, and that's why she's come back to live with her father's family. Sayoko is the only character in the novel who is wholly empathetic. She welcomes Tetsuya when he comes home from work, she makes him tea, she sits with him, she listens to him talk, and she is also, of course, effortlessly beautiful and naturally charming. For Tetsuya, she represents all that is good and light in his dark, oppressive, depressive world. Sayoko is also a devout Christian with firm moral standards. And given the circumstances, her half-sister and her stepmother despise her, and their dislike for Sayoko and poor treatment of her only worsens when they see that Tetsuya more than often takes her side as against them. In particular, he's riddled with guilt and anxiety about the need to arrange a marriage or some kind of domestic situation for Sayoko. Initially, he agrees to send her as a governess to the household of the rich international businessman Shibuya, but when it becomes clear that Shibuya sees her as more a mistress and a sexual plaything for himself than as a governess for his children, and this is something that everyone but the naive Sayoko seems to have suspected would be the case, she flees back home, and Tetsuya takes her in once again over the protests of his wife and mother-in-law slash mother. Now, even if you haven't read the book, you know exactly where this is going. Tetsuya falls in love with Sayoko, miserable, 
completely, hopelessly in love with her, and she reciprocates his affection, although the guilt weighs heavily on her conscience. But of course, the relationship is doomed. Not only is the affair extramarital, even though Sayoko is not related by blood to Tetsuya, legally she is his sister, and he's also her legal guardian, so she's therefore his daughter, technically. Now, none of this would be a problem in the Heian period, but alas, that's not where the characters find themselves. Nonetheless, Tetsuya initially convinces Sayoko to run away with him. But at the last minute, she changes her mind, unable in the end to violate her religious beliefs or to destroy the only family she knows, however unkind and unfamiliar they've been to her. Devastated, Tetsuya loses hope and descends into a life of drinking and despair. In the end, he not only abandons his family, but leaves Japan, traveling to China, where in the closing pages of the novel, he's a homeless alcoholic, living out his numbered days on the streets, knowing and caring for no one, but thinking often of his lost love. One wonders if Futabate Hishime's readers, who followed the fictional travails of Tetsuya and Sayoko as their story played out in the Asai Shimbun in 1906, and who likely were also simultaneously reading news about real-life Mukoyoshi driven to extremity, we wonder, what did they think? Were they taking in all this as evidence that threats to the family system from outsiders were many and serious? And why do we see this seemingly sudden uptick of crises concerning adopted sons-in-law in the Meiji period? Let me just offer a few very preliminary observations that loop back to the questions I posed at the beginning of the talk. First, conflict between adopted sons-in-law and their adoptive families certainly did not begin in the Meiji period. Witness the prevalence of divorce of adopted sons-in-law in the Tokugawa period. Clearly, it's an inherently difficult situation, and it often didn't work out. What changes in the Meiji period is the nature of public discourse, especially discourse enabled by that great Meiji invention, the newspaper. As newspapers proliferated, so did categories of people and things subject to public discussion. Whereas in the Tokugawa period, if you had a problem with your adopted son-in-law, you had a problem with your adopted son-in-law. It was your problem, not necessarily anyone else's. In the Meiji period, the newspapers created a world of public opinion and public discussion, and family matters became a topic of great concern, especially because they reflected the state of civilization pertaining or not pertaining in Japan, a condition that might be assessed and measured by international observers. The Meiji press was highly aware that Japan and Japanese customs were being observed and judged by outsiders. Witness the moralizing tone of an article from the Yomiuri from the fifth day of the ninth month of 1876. Quote, we hear reports of bad customs in the land, it declares, and then relates the story of a mukoyoshi who came into the, a, a Tokyo house as husband of the oldest of three daughters, but then had an affair with the middle daughter and sent the oldest to live elsewhere, and he then established himself as companion to the middle daughter, but then had an affair with the youngest daughter, sent the middle to live in Monzen Nakacho somewhere. Everyone in the family knew of this setup. At the end of the story, the newspaper opines, quote, corrupt habits will ruin this country's reputation, end quote. And the didactic pronouncements ending many news stories show that Meiji newspapers were not just purveyors of news, they were active shapers of opinion, often amplifying official ideology, as Carol Gluck has masterfully argued in her book, Japan's Modern Myths. In the Meiji quest to belong to the community of nations, marriage customs, women's roles, and family propriety became key indicators of Japan's civility. As the voice of official propriety, the, proper the, the popular press tended to elevate threats to the family, like rogue Mukoyoshi, into major crises or social problems, shakai mondai, that Meiji neologism that became the feverish focus of so much public debate in the 1870s and 80s. So in other words, it was perhaps not intrafamilial conflict itself that increased 
from Tokugawa to Meiji. It was the discourse about and the awareness of that conflict that grew and manifested itself in very public ways in the Meiji press and in the world of fiction. A second observation concerns the changing social and legal content, context of family conflict. As far as I can tell, there's an initial burst of news reportage on adoptee malfeasance in the early Meiji period in the 1870s and early 1880s. Then it tails off somewhat, although cases of violence and revenge by Mukoyoshi continue to be reported well into the 20th century. There are several possible explanations for this. One is that the 1870s and 1880s were a period of legal transition. The Meiji Penal Code was not instituted until January 1882, and the new Civil Code was revised and haggled over for decades and wasn't implemented until 1898. This might explain the indeterminacy of those early newspaper reports from the 1870s from which I read. They often end with the perpetrator being apprehended or disappearing or dead, but there seems to be no legal or penal resolution. Perhaps it also explains the frequency of reports of bad behavior in the 1870s and early 80s. Criminal behavior had yet to be specified, and in the absence, absence of standards and laws, either there seemed to be or there was an uptick in unacceptable behavior that would in other circumstances have been cracked down upon and punished. Only after the institution of the 1882 Penal Code do you start seeing articles that report on the consequences of crimes by Mukoyoshi. One example is in the eighth month of 1882, and the, the Penal Code was issued in, uh, instituted in January of that year, the Yomiuri reported that, quote, last year a man named Yoshida Takajiro from Sasayama and Tamba province came to Tokyo and stayed in a traveler's inn in Shitaya Kuruzakacho. While there, he had an affair with Ochiku, daughter of one Nakazawa Ichinojo of the same neighborhood. As a result, he became the adopted son-in-law of that house. However, things in the household did not go well, and he was divorced. After this, even the sight of his former wife and father-in-law enraged him, such that this year, on the second day of the second month, he took a sword two shaku long, two feet long, <coughs> entered the Nakazawa house, pushed Ichinojo out of the way, and stabbed Ochika's mother, Ochio, and severely wounded Ochika on the head and in other places. This was reported widely in the papers at the time. Takajiro was cried in, tried in criminal court, and it was announced yesterday that he was sentenced to 15 years of penal servitude. Now, a final observation about law, family, and fiction. The development of the Meiji Penal Code was fairly straightforward and urgent, and its institution in 1882 was relatively quick. Not so for the 1898 Civil Code. The sticking point in negotiations over civil law were laws regarding the family, specifically over the degree to which individuals should retain rights and privileges as individuals, as opposed to rights and privileges of the family itself as a corporate entity. This debate was, of course, rooted in the developing ideology of the family state, the Kazoku Kokka. Now, the term Kazoku itself was also a Meiji neologism, an amalgam of Ie, the long-standing term for the Japanese home or household or family, and Zoku, the term for a group, a tribe, a larger social entity. The emphasis on the Kazoku belied a new Meiji concern with the importance of individual nucleated families, that is, cohabiting parents and children, as well as their encompassing lineages, which stretched backward and forward in time. Within the Kazoku, especially in those whose members, uh, especially in those families whose members included newly educated modern men and women, there were countervailing pressures to conform to the ways of the larger Ie, of the past and of the future, while also achieving as individuals in the here and now for the well-being of the family in the moment and the reputation of the household or kazoko in the as the immediate manifestation of the ie. 
The battle over the details of the civil code is just one reflection of indecision over how the individual should be positioned vis-a-vis -vis the family and the state. These new challenges, legal, social, economic, and otherwise, were no doubt felt by all members of families. But the best-known chroniclers of those struggles and challenges, those who give us an interior psychological view of family life, tended to be men, male Meiji writers. One could argue, I suppose, that many Meiji novels are family novels, not only Futabate Shime, but Natsume Soseki, Tayama Katai, Uchida Roan, Shimazaki Tosan, all of them wrote about male protagonists struggling with the burdens of making their way as individuals in a collective society, the burdens of which are symbolized by their spouses and families. Liberation, experimentation, adventure, and love beckon these new men of Meiji, but familial obligations hold them back and weigh them down. As one critic put it, for these men, the family is beta beta. It is sticky, stifling, and even as they pull away, they can't ever fully get free. When the male protagonist happens to be a mukoyoshi, the family obligations take on a new and particularly burdensome cast uh, with structural obligation of the family uh, standing in for, uh, sort of, uh, standing as opposite of emotional connection. Certainly, Futabate Shime's Sono Omokage shows us that, and Ono Tetsuya's story ends on a grim note. But Meiji novels always end on a grim note, uh, because their narrators were angst-ridden young men dealing with a world in flux. While we might look to them for some evidence of familial affect, we certainly would want to approach them as slightly unreliable narrators, and even less reliable historical sources. All the same, they and their true crime counterparts' misery is good company for a historian, if only because they turn Tolstoy's adage on its head. At least for the Meiji Mukoyoshi I've talked about today, all families were unhappy in just the same way. Thank you. Yeah, it's not, it's not clear. And I talk about this book uh, in the book a little bit. It's very hard to, to, to tell how much input, how much you know, influence they had over choosing who married in, who married out. Uh, but they're very involved. I mean, if you look at memoirs and diaries, they're very involved in the maintenance of all kinds of social ties. So for example, Kuroda Tosako, uh, she maintains ties to her, her natal family, her adoptive family, her husband's natal family, her husband's adoptive family. With, uh, with, she's, she's, again, you don't know if she's making the decisions, but she's deeply involved in the marriages of all her children and a lot of her grandchildren. Uh, she has them over, she, uh, uh, she goes to visit them, she stays with her daughters. Every time they have a child, she goes and she stays with them for a month or, you know, or whatever. Um, so, so, so that's what I mean, it's kind of the maintenance of the, uh, of the social world of the family, which radiates out through all these kin networks, and the women are the ones who maintain that. It's not that the men don't, um, but you know, that's not really their job. I mean, they, they, they receive guests, certainly they will entertain family, but the women are the ones who are giving the gifts, who are receiving the visitors, who are uh, having outing, you know, going on outings with various members, permutation members of the family, and, and making those connections uh, real. Um, in, in other cases, you have evidence of women who are 
you know, are, who are the ones who are, are figuring out uh, how to marry off their kids. I mean, the husband is away on, on, on work. They're the ones who are figuring out what, who's this daughter's got to marry, who's that daughter's got to marry, who, what house this son is going to get adopted into, and figuring out the finances and, and the whole business. So, um, so I think, again, these are, these are elite, fairly elite women. These are all bushy class uh, women. Um, but, uh, you know, one, one could uh, imagine that, that uh, a lot of families worked in the same way, I mean, same similar ways, not in the same way, but um, the, but that women did have, uh, if not direct influence on on establishing the marriage tie, which of course had to be negotiated formally through the husband or father, um, but they had a lot of influence on um, the behind the scenes work and the maintenance of those ties. Yeah. Can I ask yeah. a follow up to that? So if, if the women are not the ones actually instigating those adoption mm -hmm. relationships. Why are they, in all of those Meiji examples you gave, the object of anger? Mm. Is it because they're the ones maintaining or they're easy targets? Or what, why are the men being stabbed? Why are the men being stabbed? That's a good question. Um, yeah, so, the, so I, there's a lot of, of theories one has. And I think part of it is because with the changes in the structure of the family and the, especially the legal definition of family in the Meiji period that doesn't, isn't really solidified until 1898 with the civil code is the, the is family is being, is being nucleated, right? So the, so, so the, the, the sort of um, maybe the tensions and the angers that would have been maybe diffused in a larger group are now concentrated among very few individuals. And the, the, the husbands that marry in are probably people with, without many other resources. They're younger sons. They're not inherit. They're, they're not. You know, they, they've married out of their families, so technically they've cut ties with their natal families. And this new relationship is their only hope. And then all of a sudden, it's taken away. Uh, it's taken away from them. And so they feel at risk that the the wife still has her family. The wife can remarry. The husband is the one who's sort of cut loose. Um, and so. Again, at least in the way that newspapers are reporting it, it's he's the sort of dangerous loose cannon. Um, you know, there may very well have been cases that work the other way, but we're not seeing them in the newspaper. This seems to be a phenomenon that they're dwelling on as a as a problem, um, and a problem that combines again a lot of bad behaviors, uncivilized behaviors, drinking, um, uh, spending too much, you know, overspending money. Uh, to you know, to a person, they're all these spend. They're spending the money. They're drinking. They're behaving badly, and then this happens, which is their fault. And so, uh, you know, so so it's a, it's a moral lesson. It's an opportunity to teach a moral lesson about this bad person. But why isn't he stabbing the father or somebody else? Why is it all directed at the wife? Does she ultimately have the choice, or or uh, yeah, or the mother-in-law? Or the mother-in-law. Yeah, well, in some case, a lot of these cases, they're they're single women. They're widows, I think. So it's, it's it's because it's all women, um, and the wife, it's a good question. The wife perhaps represents, because she's the one who's divorcing him, she represents the most direct instantiation of this misery-causing um, relationship into which he's been thrown. Um, it may also be because probably the legal penalties for killing a parent are worse than the legal penalties for killing a spouse. I'm not sure, but I think that's, that's, technically, that's technically true. Um, but that is that is a, a, a really. I have to think more about that. But why the aggression goes against the 
the wife and not against the... In the Tokyo period, you see a lot of tales of, of these spurned women uh, who are spurned wives and then take their aggression out against husbands or husbands' families. So it might be a kind of corollary of that. Yeah. Mentioned that the practice of adoption as succession doesn't mean that the Japanese family was unique. Mm -hmm. Could you? Um, I don't understand why you emphasized it. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, if, it's a, if, it's, if it's not if it's not unique, then what? so so yeah. I guess I no. I, I don't. I mean that it's different, and because because they the practices as I talked about the practices of adoption, especially adoption of sons-in-law, is different in Japan. It's distinct. But what I want to do is to separate um, an emphasis on the distinctness of that practice and the difference from then saying that the Japanese family is. Uh, uniquely Japanese, and there's no other family like the Japanese family, which is a, a lot of scholarship from the 1970s uh, and the 1960s emphasized just that thing, that the Japanese ie is, you know, is a, is a uniquely uh, Japanese social formation, um, that it's the, the, the heart of Japanese society and Japanese culture, and everything in, in, in Japanese culture can be explained by the uniqueness of the ie. That's what I want to get away from. I'm not saying it's not different. It is. It is different. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that, you know, I don't want to revive those old ar arguments about, about um, the uniqueness of the Japanese family. And that's why I wanted to, uh, to give you those, that background and those figures because I wanted to emphasize that it's, it is a, just a structural necessity. Adoption becomes a structural necessity of these small, relatively small stem families that have to preserve themselves. You know, biological reproduction just doesn't, you know, especially in the era of high infant mortality, just does not do it. And you have to have, you have, to have a safety net, and adoption uh, is that safety net. And, the, and so it evolved in, in really interesting distinctive ways in Japan because of all these contextual, contextual um, forces. But that doesn't mean that it's, you know, this cultural, timeless, you know, essence of, of everything Japanese. Yeah. yeah. I'm just wondering about the origins of this adoption system. Uh -huh. Was there really any pushback against it? Like for the original? Uh, pushback when? Just pushback against other families or any dispute where you say, like, well, you know, this, this is pretty unique compared to like Korea or China. Right. So with this adoption air system, was there any pushback against it on the government level or on No, I mean, it wasn't invented in the Tokyo period. It's, it's happened, it, it, I mean, son-in-law adoption has been a, uh, uh, an aspect of, of Japanese family systems since, since ancient times, classical times. Um, and it, it, there's some theories that it grows out of uh, a bilateral kinship model that, um, that has very deep roots in, in ancient Japan. Um, uh, in, in you know predating the the classical period, so no, there's no, it's always been there. So there's no there's no pushback within uh, within Japan. There's pushback when the Japanese try to institute it on the Koreans and say you need to reform your customs. And one of the things you need to do is to start adopting sons-in-law. And and they compel the Koreans do not want to do this, but they're forced by the colonial government to practice this. And as soon as the war's over, the Koreans get rid of son-in-law adoption and don't and and, and uh, do not do it. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, so, so the general understanding has been that, that women probably had relatively little uh, choice over, over who to marry. However, there, there are there are inside records, so you can't tell from genealogies, obviously, you can't tell from most sources um, who chose the spouse and whether the spouse was agreeable to the, to the person um, being married uh, to the woman. Um, but there are some sort of inside records, household records, um, that, that seem to indicate, and uh, this is the case in some, I've seen some evidence from samurai lineages, but uh, more from commoner lineages, where women did have a say over and say, no, I don't want to marry that person, or I don't want to marry now, or um, so. So there, there, it wasn't unprecedented. Uh, we just, it's really hard for us to know. Um, but you see comments in diarists from the Edo period about, uh, you know, the ideal was a, was an agreeable companion at marriage. That was the, the the ideal. So they'll say they'll comment about like this woman Kuroda Tosoko will comment about, oh, they're such an agreeable couple. Or they're such, a, you know, now whether this is all rhetoric is another question, but she makes a point of saying that as if, because it's important um, that the couple get along. Um, but you have to take it with a grain of salt because it was, again, it was, a convention, it was a conventional thing to say. And if you're a good lineage manager, you would want to say that about the matches that, that are being made. Um, um, I'm wondering if like, your examples for the newspaper articles, is, like, is there really like, evidence that the sun in laws or like there's like there's a constant repetition in drinking violence yeah. an arch type or like exaggeration isolated case or extreme cases because it feels like they kind of build it like the way you build it up it's almost like an arch type yeah yeah like, yeah it's like the the image of like oh the men are like violence and they 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 drink a lot and then uh -huh. they their life yeah but is there really like is it just isolated cases or is it like a uh, uh huh. Uh huh. It's a really good question, and and again, I think it, part of it is the emphasis on these vices that in the modern state, the Meiji state wants to wants to you know wants to see Japan wants Japan to be seen as a civilized place. So they want to condemn these kinds of vices. Um, and so yeah, it's it, in, in that sense they are constructing a kind of archetypal bad behavior, you know, archetypal bad behavior, and they're locating it, interestingly though, they're locating it in the person of the adopted son-in-law. Um, you know, why, why that and not some other person is another question. But, but I think, you know, these are, these seem to be, anyway, they're news reports uh, of things that happen. They're reported as if, I have no, you know, not much reason to doubt their validity. They name people, they name neighborhoods, they name, they give ages uh, of, of people. Um, so. I don't think they're exaggerated in reporting what happened, but the fact that they're selecting to report those particular stories in that particular way is definitely a shaping of a narrative, and the narrative that emerges is the bad behaving um, son-in-law. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if it, like, given all the reporting about adoptions and how the lineages don't seem to function uh, genealogically, I was wondering if it's appropriate to think of pre-Meiji families as something more like a socioeconomic institution mm -hmm. rather than uh, what we would call like, consider a genealogical concept. So it's almost yeah. like a company, mm -hmm. almost in a sense, like a lot of the... Yeah. Uh, this has been observed about Japanese families also. And again, I think it, I think 
we need to, to also keep an open mind about you know all the different varieties of families that exist in our world um, but but yeah so so the 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 what is he a sociologist Murakami uh, Yasuke um, who's a, a theorist of the family uh, in the 60s and 70s he coined the word kin tractship kin tract like contract and kinship kin tractship to describe the Japanese family because it is a, is a mix of a kinship relationship and a contractual relationship um, as you're saying, it, it's like, you know, people bound by a, a, a familial, a fami something that's familiar to us as a kinship relationship, right? Their family, their relations, blood relations, uh, but all, there's also a contractual aspect to it. Like you are contracted to play this role. You are brought into the family to play the role of heir. Uh, you know, if you adopt a son-in-law, that's your role. Uh, whether we like you or not is... <laughs> You know, it, it 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 helps if we do, but we may not. But we need you, um, so you, so you're gonna you're gonna play this. Role. I mean, that's a very kind of kind of very uh, schematic way of representing it. Um, but there there is there is that aspect to it. Now, it doesn't it doesn't mean that in the best cases the son-in-law was brought in as any spouse would be as a loved and honored member of the family, and everything went well. Um, but because of the intercession, frequent intercession by adoptees and and other in marrying folks maybe the chances for uh, dispute were higher, so you had to have these very clear-cut rules so that people would function and the family would continue. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely an observation that's been made about the Japanese family that does resemble a kind of corporate, corporate, like not business model, but corporate entity uh, that's held together by lots, by many other factors besides kin, blood, emotional relationships, yeah. In Southeast Asia, um, you know that's interesting because people often bring up uh, Siam, Thailand, as a good comparison to Japan in, in the modern period, especially because they were not colonized, but they were sort of sem they were influenced. Uh, they, they, they were sort of semi-colonized, but not but not uh, colonized. In terms of marriage practices, though, I think the only place where I've seen in Asia where I've seen um, the kinds of adoption practices, something comparable to the kinds of adoption practices in Japan is in, is in, um, is in Hindu South Asia. Uh, so, so I don't know about Southeast Asia, but that's one family model. The, the, the traditional Indian family model is another, is another um, avenue of comparison that I think, uh, I think needs to be explored. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Why is that? Um, so yeah, I talked about that briefly. So in, in, um, in the Chinese and Korean case, when you adopt an heir, um, there are very strong rules that, um, there are very strong rules that you should adopt just an heir, uh, a single heir who's related to you already. So you should adopt a, a single heir that's related to you through, your fa through the father's side. So, uh, so you know, anthropologists call it agnatic kin. So the, the father's side, uh, single adoptee, um, so, so, so those, and those rules, like, you know, Anne Waltner's uh, uh, book, Getting an Air, shows that there were a lot of exceptions to that. They didn't always adhere to those rules, um, but the rules were very, the rules were very strong, and, um, and, and so it made it such that, that the convention was to adopt these single, already related people 
for the airship, for air, for, to, to adopt for airship in, in China. Um, and Korea the same way. Um, Korea under um, um, Koryo dynasty, before the Chosun, there were adoption practices very much resembled Japanese adoption practices. You could adopt more freely, you could adopt non-kin, you could adopt um, daughters' husbands. But when uh, the, in, in the Chosun dynasty, there was a reinvigoration of, of kind of Confucian practices, and they sort of adopted much more strict Confucian rules for succession, which um, dictated that you should adopt this father's kinsman. So those took hold much more strongly in Korea than they did in Japan, um, because Japan has a long tradition of adopting of adopting sons-in-law and adopting, you know, all kinds of people. <laughs> so um, so that that continued in Japan and didn't uh, and wasn't affected by those. There were debates about it, but they weren't. It wasn't. Uh, the Japanese elite did not seem to obey those rules as strongly as the elites in China and, the, and in Korea. Yeah, yeah. You So this is the adopted son-in-law, right? Um, and again, it depends. It, it, just these particular, like that particular story, that novel, um, really dwells on the dilemma of this particular son-in-law. But we can take him as kind of again an as someone mentioned, an archetype of the the, the son-in-law who, you know, all the problems that might affect these adopted sons-in-law who are technically househeads, but are not whose authority is not respected by the women in the house. And this is again a I kind of think kind of symbol of like the major, you know, kind of a panic thing, like this would be terrible, right? <laughs> he's the man, he's supposed to be in charge, he's supposed to run the house, and yet these women, they don't listen to him, they spend his money, they criticize him. Um, you know, it, it, what is society coming to in this modern world? Uh, you know, so, so it's kind of another uh, recitation of, of, of woe about the difficulties of transition in this, in this period. Um, but again, it's not an old problem. It's just, I mean, it's not a new problem. It's an old problem that's been giving a new attention in the Meiji context and in this particular form of the novel where we get to see his thinking, right? We get to see as the depths of his misery and his conflict and uh, how much he can't stand his wife and how much he, yeah, uh, goes on and on and the mother-in-law and, you know, the whole situation. Um, so, so, uh, so yeah, that, that was just that particular Thing, but, but it's not uncommon. I mean, um, you know, Yanagida Kunio, the famous anthropologist, um, was an adopted son-in-law. And he, his own natal house, I talk about this a little bit in the book, his own natal house, his, his own um, family's line was extinguished because they were doctors and his oldest brother refused to take over the headship of the family house. And that all the other sons were sent out in adoption. So Yanagida was adopted. He was born, I forget what his birth name was, but he was adopted by the Yanagida family, who were like a scholar family, and they saw great promise in him, so they adopted him as their heir. He married, was adopted to marry one of their daughters, but they treated him kind of badly. Like they gave him <laughs> a little tiny uh, study, you know, in the house that he was supposed to be in his house, and he's supposed to be this great scholar, and they stuck him in some, you know, little tiny office and didn't respect him. So, so he had this experience of being a kind of subjected son-in-law so you know and you hear there's there's sort of stories and lore about it so it doesn't seem to be an isolated case but it's one that is played up uh, in the media is there kind of the masculine equivalent of the borrowed womb in other words mm. why not 
have the Mukoyoshi come in, have his cha uh, uh, a son, and say, okay, fine, you're done here. Uh, you, you know, we can get rid of you. Is, uh -huh. it, I mean, is your evidence showing a kind huh. of pattern in that? Huh, that's interesting. Um, well, because it's a little tricky because uh, you would have to wait until the son was of age, right? Until technically, technically but you're you're kind of bargaining. You get rid of the if you get rid of the the, the son-in-law and then something happens to the son, son you've got the same problem again. Now you got to get another son-in-law <laughs> to replace the son. I mean, so so uh, yeah. And so majority was what age? Oh, you could appoint an infant as right. as an infant, so, but, but so there wasn't any rule. It was just a matter of it was a matter of trying to figure it out. Yeah, okay. and and trying to trying to figure out what was a safe bet and what would uh, you know what what would get. It, it depended on what you needed too. Like if somebody was dying and you needed an heir right now, you could appoint an infant or a five-year-old an heir solve your problem, but then if something happens to that error, then, you, then you've got to go down the line and, and figure something out. Um, so I guess it would, just, it would just depend on, but that's tricky. I mean, to, to, you could de facto shove him to the side, but not divorce him, like deny right. him of all the privileges of whatever, and who knows whether or not that, I'm sure it did happen, but we just don't, don't really know. It all sounds so mechanical. I, I, I hate to, I mean, it seems like oh, these are the worst families in the world, but it's, not, it's just the case that you see the emphasis on this the problems and not on the, the happy ones. Well, right? well and as, you, as you said, that the conceptually, it was hoped that there was going to be mar marital harmony. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. in fact, the production of progeny was kind of linked to that as mm -hmm. well, right? Yep. So for a whole lot of reasons, there was a lot, there should have been a lot of goodwill mm -hmm. to make these relationships work. Right, and right. What you're catching is the, the ones that didn't. The ones that didn't, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, so are there any sort of examples of great family lines that somehow managed to uh, not continue with the trend of appointing heirs and sort of just died out? You had that example about uh, that famous scholar whose who's name family uh, mm -hmm. died out. Mm -hmm. uh, so are there any sort of other examples of Oh, lots. Yeah, genealogies come to an end. Danzas, I mean, it, the extinguishing of a family line um, happened fairly frequently in the Intokawa period. There was no heir, and so officially, if you were of the samurai class, officially your lineage came to an end, and that was something everybody wanted to avoid um, because of the, the stakes were so high. Um, and in modern families, too, you know, a lineage could, could easily die out. Um, so there, there are negative examples everywhere. You, you're, look, you know, you're looking around, you want to avoid that fate, which is why you invest so much effort in, in constructing these families that will so survive. So compare the frequencies of families dying out uh, during the Edo and Meiji period to um, more Western societies? Hmm. How would those lineages, hmm. uh, in the sense that would Western ones be dying out more quickly than ones in the Edo and Meiji period Japan? Or well, but so the structures there. Uh, it, I'm thinking maybe it would sort of prevent uh, the breakdowns of families uh -huh. as opposed to in Western societies. Yeah. So what you what you have in Japan are families that are nominally extremely long lived. You know, there's lineages that stretch back, you know, hundreds, of, but the, who would never have survived had it not been for adoption. 
Um, and because in, in Europe, adoptionist practice was, was not you know, engaged in, in this way, I imagine that you'd have you know, a, 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 a vastly higher number of families becoming, but, but since it wasn't kept record, that you didn't have records kept necessarily of numbers of extinguished families in Europe in the same way that you would among, say, the samurai class, you, you, know, you wouldn't necessarily keep them of commoner families either unless you went through and weeded through you know, all the, the, the uh, demographic records and tried to figure out which ones survived and which ones didn't. Um, so it's something that's very consciously kept a record of in the elite classes of Japan that is not necessarily, you don't have those records for, well, you would have them for the, for the European nobility, right? Because this, again, the stakes are high. Um, so I think it's really hard to compare sort of rates and numbers. Um, and because the, the definition of the family is so different, um, I think it would also be hard to, to, to um, compare if you are you comparing nominally, or are you comparing in terms of you know blood descent, that kind of thing? Yeah, sorry, it's not a very good answer. So when did this practice of sons in law come to an end? Come to an end? Ah, <laughs> so okay, now I can give you some numbers. Um, so Japan today, um, if you look at rates of child adoption in Japan, uh, there is virtually it, it's extremely vanishingly rare to adopt children and infants in Japan, either domestically or internationally. But um, Japan is one of the highest, has one of the highest per capita rates of adoption. Uh, the thing is that 98.5% of adoptions in Japan are adult adoptions, not child adoptions. Only 1.5% of adoptions in Japan are child or infant adoptions. Um, and that is extremely odd. <laughs> um, the United States and Japan are the world outliers in terms of frequency of adoption, but in the United States, the vast majority of adoptions are of children and infants, um, which you know, people adopt to raise as their own. Whereas in Japan, the vast majority of adoptions are adult adoptions, uh, mostly of a, sons in, uh, a large number are for our sons-in-law, who are still adopted for airship purposes. Um, some are uh, uh, adoptions um, to, to, legal, to de facto legalize same-sex relationships, which are not uh, legally allowed otherwise, so one partner adopts the other partner. You have to be a day older than the person you adopt in Japan, um, legally. Um, and then there used to be a weird inheritance um, tax uh, uh, thing that made it um, economically uh, a good thing to, on your deathbed, adopt a bunch of kids uh, to defray uh, inheritance costs, but they closed that loophole, so that's not a thing anymore. Um, so I don't know if the numbers of adult adoption will decrease, but, but it's a it's, so to this day, to this day, uh, adopted sons-in-law are still uh, uh, adopted at relatively high numbers in Japan and very often to continue family businesses. Um, so, you know, you see these articles about Japan is the oldest family-run firms in the world, and there are some that are, you know, 800 years old. Well, you know, because they keep adopting. You know, there's not a family. It's, it's, well, it is a family, but it's not a bloodline, uh, so to speak. So. Do you think the idea of family as being bound by blood tie? Do you think that was a prevalent strong element of conception of families in a very long time? Uh huh. So what was being bound by? Yeah. Yeah. I think again, you know, like in any family situation, there's an ideal. And then there's what actually works in reality. So the ideal was for people, for it to be an inter, you know, integral 
you know, blood relation, parent to child, uh, eldest son inherits, you know, that was the ideal. But the reality was there, aren't, there weren't that many families that actually could perpetuate themselves in that way. And also in the early modern period, especially in the 17th century, into the, slightly into the early 18th century, families, you know, the, the vast majority of families were, were farming families, and farming families you know, uh, included not only kin, but servants, hereditary servants, um, you know, all sorts of non-related people were, were integrated into the large farming family. And then over time, those families got smaller and smaller in size as the economy changed and arable land decreased and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so, but I think at the core, the ideal family is still the blood-related family. There's just uh, a sort of extra circle added on to that that is also family, right? And that might include all kinds of unrelated people by blood, you know, adoptees, servants, uh, various people who come labor, you know, contractual, and they're all kind of arranged in a, in a concentric circle, but at the center is, is are the blood-related uh, blood kin. So I don't think it's, I think it's, you know, a central sort of operative concept in, in any family system that that is always the core. It's just, how then does that core of blood relation, uh, you know, at what level does it become viable to depend on that to perpetuate a family over time? Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, exactly. Yeah. 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 And that was not allowed. I don't know who did it, huh. but heirs were appointed after uh -huh. his death yeah. to keep the family line going. So it's it's like you can't even. <laughs> you can't even. You can't even. Yeah, yeah. It's that's really interesting. Was it a family council or something? I, I don't know who did it. I, I don't know who, who huh. actually. Uh, I wonder because if he was a statesman or because he, he was a general, because he was an important person, they just decided to overrule him. And well, I, there was property and other things that needed to be taken care of. Uh huh. Um, and maybe they just didn't know what to do except appoint an heir. But um, it, it was clearly a very emotional thing for him. You know, damn it, I want my name to die. Yeah. And they didn't allow it. And they didn't allow it. Wow, that's really interesting. Okay, thanks for that. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, if you're one of my students and you wanted to ask a question you didn't get to, you can just email it to me. Uh, you'll get your credit for that. Aha, <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh, extra credit. Thank you so much yeah, for your questions. Uh, enjoy being uh, mm -hmm. thank you.